A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello and welcome. I'm Tim Farron and this is the show where you get to hear from a Christian politician, apart from me, about how they live out their faith in the mucky business of politics. You might be, as a Christian, suspicious about politics, tainted as it is by compromise and sin. Well, yes, it is. But then again, so is everything else on planet Earth since the fall. And I think Christians should be praying for their brothers and sisters who are in politics in an informed way. Well, today we're going to talk with Stephen Timms, former Labour cabinet minister, about the church and government, about how they can work together, how you can serve your community as a politician, but how you can also get involved in changing huge issues just as a run of the mill, ordinary member of the public, a Christian praying for things that matter to them. Well, we look forward to talking to Stephen in a bit, but first we've got Cara Bentley with a roundup of some of the news this week. Well, it seems appropriate that just as the daffodils are starting to appear and the outside starts to get a bit more appealing, that this week the schedules for the UK's route out of lockdown are being released and discussed. In Scotland and Wales, the youngest children have already gone back to school and a phased return has been announced for education in Northern Ireland. In England, Boris Johnson has revealed what he's called his one-way road to freedom, his four-step plan to get everyone back to normal, which he hopes will be at the end of June. And that includes, for the first time, a hope from the government of no social distancing, something that hasn't been on the cards for a very long time. Now, all of this advice will, of course, be moulded specifically for places of worship. The Church of England will produce their own guidance and there is normally accompanying documents from the government. And of course, I think we would all like to know when we'll be allowed to sing again. Now, churches in England are currently allowed to open, but many have chosen to stay closed or do a mixture of closed and online. So although the roadmap doesn't have anything specific for churches, it could mean that churches which have opted to close might feel they'll be able to do a bit more by Easter weekend in early April, making up for the frantic setting up of live streams across the country for Easter last year. Now, churches in Scotland are currently still closed, so many people will be hoping that Nicola Sturgeon gives them a date this week to reopen for gathered worship and obviously some people will feel this is all too slow others will feel it's too fast that's for you to make your own mind up tim how do you feel about the pace of lifting the restrictions bit early to say but it feels about in the goldilocks zone just about right and i think the biggest number of people opinion polled out there seem to think that too so yeah i think many of us feeling a bit more positive this morning at the enormous risk of speaking too soon it's because the news on the vaccine is increasingly good and that allows the Prime Minister and the First Ministers of the other devolved nations to be making these slightly more hopeful decisions. One in three people have now had their first jab. Even healthy youngsters like me, because 50 is the new 30, are closing in on our trip to the vaccination centre soon. There is also evidence this week that the vaccine has reduced hospitalizations by around 90%. And crucially, that that is reducing the transmission of the virus. The Prime Minister yesterday told us how he hopes the country will gradually move out of lockdown. What he can't do is give us any real clues about when we might get back to normal, because what's normal? Who wants to be normal anyway? And surely this experience has affected what all of us want normal to look like in the future. Over this last 11 months, people have faced death. 
illness, unemployment, sadness, isolation, boredom, poverty, challenges to their dignity, cancellation of exams, disruption of studies, the fizzling out of relationships because of enforced separation, business failure, the denial of those things that we were looking forward to that kept us going, holidays, nights out, time with friends, going to the football, going to watch a concert. We live in a society where people shield themselves from the grim realities of death, disease and disappointment by hiding behind a long list of things that we've now lost. People are disturbed and disorientated, even if we get many of them back. I don't know about you, but I increasingly find people much more willing today to ask the big questions about the meaning of life. What's it all about? We may be familiar with the concept of Christians doubting their faith sometimes, but I sense there is now a wave of non-Christians seriously doubting the things that they had their faith in. At the same time, the witness of Christians meeting the needs of their communities during the pandemic has really, really changed the way that many people view the church. A Savanta Comres poll conducted recently for Your Neighbour showed that more than a third of non-Christians now agree that local churches are making a positive difference in their community. And that's up from just a fifth thinking that before the pandemic. Also, 42% of UK adults now agree that churches are helping their community. That's a 7% rise on before COVID hit. So maybe people are a little more willing to hear why it is that Christians do what we do and believe what we believe. The not so hidden agenda behind this show is to encourage Christians to be interested in politics and their community. Not that you should all rush out and join a political party, start delivering leaflets or stand for the council, but that you should be informed about, care about and be involved in the world in which you have been placed. And one reason we should do that is so that we can have opportunities to share the gospel. If this is a time when people are newly open to the possibility that there may be something or someone in whom their hope will not be futile, if the disturbance of normal life has unearthed in people a thirst that they cannot quench, then what a tragedy if we aren't there to gently share what we believe. If you are volunteering for the Citizens Advice Bureau, your food bank, for local charities, then you are not just witnessing to God's love by your service to others, you are on hand to gently answer those big questions when they get asked. And if you're not, you're not. As Peter says in his first letter, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. My prayer for myself and for all of us is that we would get our hands dirty serving in our communities so that we will be that much more likely to be asked. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Well, this week on the show, we're talking about how much the church and government should work together on social issues in communities and across the country. And there's no one better to talk to about those issues than Stephen Timms, who's part of a church leadership team in his constituency, MP for East Ham, former member of the cabinet and a minister for 12 years during the Labour government. Well, Stephen, it's a huge honour to have you with us on the show. Now, uh, I find the feedback we get from listeners uh, tells me that people are hugely encouraged by the knowledge that there are Christians in Parliament 
um, and indeed quite a good number of us. I want to first ask you, if you wouldn't mind, if you wouldn't mind telling us how you became a Christian in the first place. Mm. Well, I, I'm not from a, a Christian family. I grew up in Hampshire, became a Christian as a teenager through attending a Crusaders Bible class. Uh, they've changed their name now. They're, they're urban saints, but still doing a great job. Uh, and it was through what happened there that I became convinced of the truth of the gospel and became a Christian. Now, that happened when you were a very young man. You were a teenager. You went off to university. You wisely avoided student politics. Yeah. Uh, and having left university, you felt a calling to East London and to get involved in the Labour Party in that part of the world. Yes. While I was at university, I spent all my spare time in the Christian Union. And one summer, our Christian Union group helped out on a mission in Forest Gate in the borough that I now represent as MP. And I remember my parents dropping me off there after they picked me up from university. I'd never been anywhere like East London before. And I did wonder what I'd let myself in for. I think my parents probably worried about that as well. Uh, but it was, it was only a fortnight. Uh, and, and after that, I was really hooked on the place and the, the church we'd worked with. Um, a couple of years later, I left university. I got a job in London. I needed somewhere in London to live, and I didn't know anywhere except for where we'd been on the mission. So I rented a room in the home of one of the people on the mission team, and I've been here in East London ever since. And there's very much a sense of, of calling that led you into politics in the first place. Quite a long journey between you getting involved in the Labour Party in East London and church in East London and you becoming a member of Parliament. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, well, I came to East London because I, I felt that that's what I should do. I, um, I joined the church, which had by then been planted by the mission team. That's called Plastio Christian Fellowship. Um, after 10 years, I, I, I married my wife who was originally from Singapore. She was part of that original mission team as well. Uh, and we're, we're still leaders of that church today. But I think looking back, one of the attractions for me of moving into the area was knowing there would be a lively Labour Party. I'd always been really interested in politics, but as you say, I never did anything about it beforehand. But when I moved into Newham, as well as joining the church, I, I joined the local Labour Party and was quite quickly asked to be the local branch secretary and the constituency secretary, and after a few years um, to be uh, a, a candidate for the council. And you were presumably working as a full-time employee in another industry as well as being the leader of the council. Yes, I, I was. In the end, I was able to do a deal with my employer to work three days a week for them. So I had two days a week available to be leader of Newham Council. But for a lot of people listening, it might come as a surprise to know that most of their local councillors, it's not their job. Um, it's not all that well paid to be a councillor. Uh, in not. fact, it's not really paid at all. And That's right. they therefore are working hard, presumably either raising a family, they might be retired if you're lucky, or otherwise yeah. you're having to earn a crust doing something else. Yeah. And what I found I was doing when I was leader of Newham Council, spent two days a week in the town hall. I went to work on Wednesday for a rest. <laughs> I kind of recuperated from the, the first two days of the week in my working the rest of the working week. I'm not sure that was very good for my employer, but they sound very manageable. understanding and we should be very grateful. They were. <laughs> they were. Well, I've, I've been, having been a council for many years myself, I've never been a council leader or a, uh, or a cabinet member. So I can only, only uh, admire the balance that you managed to, to pull off. And then you became a member of parliament. Yes. Um, so the previous MP 
had a heart attack, uh, very sadly, and, and died in early 1994. And I was chosen to be the Labour candidate in the by-election that followed and was elected MP in June 1994. Throughout your time uh, as a Member of Parliament, you have been uh, active in your community, uh, serving it as a Member of Parliament, but also serving it from the point of view of the church that you are a very active member of. Tell me a little bit about what that looks like in the part of East London in which you're based. Well, we're a small church now. We were a bit bigger at one stage, but there's just, you know, a couple of dozen of us uh, perhaps 30 nowadays on a Sunday morning we meet in a school um, and it's although it's very small it's always been the base for everything I've done and, and the base for me thinking about what I do as well so quite early on when I became a counsellor there was a group in the church that asked if I'd like them to pray with me regularly and that little group still meets in fact we meet every Sunday morning now to pray about um, our area to pray about what's happening in politics the work that I'm doing and that's been a, a really important foundation for everything I've, I've done in the you know 27 years well 37 years since I became a local councillor I suppose. When we talked earlier, you talked about the experience you'd had with Christians locally um, in the early days of the construction of the Channel Tunnel. Uh, and it's a wonderful story about how Christians got together, focused on a particular issue across party and prayed for something to happen that did. Well, I, I, I became a councillor in the early 1980s. Unemployment was sky high in our part of London. And the big challenge was how to attract in the jobs that we needed. So I chair of the planning committee. I started the campaign to bring the Channel Tunnel rail link then being planned to a station at Stratford in Newham. Uh, the original plan had been to take that railway line south of the Thames, not north, but it seemed to us an unmissable opportunity to bring new development, new jobs into our part of London. The government at the time umdenard about it, but I did ask a lot of people to pray about that decision, and I'm very grateful that so many did. It took 11 years, but eventually, and this was after the Labour government was elected in 1997, we got the right decision. The, the, the station started to be built, and then someone suggested that the station made it viable to host the Olympic Games with the stadium in Stratford. And as you know, we won that bid. Uh, so getting that station opened the way for London 2012. And today there are really big changes going on in the economic geography of the east side of London, new opportunities coming in, thanks to the success of the International Station campaign and thanks to all, everyone who prayed about it at the time. I think it's a wonderful story and I, hopefully it gives a little bit of a, uh, a, a tip or a lead for Christians listening as to how they might get involved in a local issue, whatever it might be. Um, uh, vast though that one that one is, there are much smaller issues that affect our local communities that Christians can get involved with. You don't need to join a political party in order to make a colossal dis difference. And of course, you know, you have access to the throne of God to go and cast your cares upon him. I hope a lot of Christians will get involved in a political party because in the end, it is through politics that our society makes its decisions. And like you, I think Christians can have a huge impact and, and getting stuck into politics is a, a very good way to do that.
You're listening to Mucky Business with me, Tim Farron. We're talking with Stephen Timms, former cabinet minister, about how the church can work with government and how Christians can play their part in politics. Now, uh, Stephen, as well as all the titles that you've had, you're also the chair of the all-party parliamentary group on faith in society and very recently uh, published a report on the interaction of uh, faith in our communities, particularly churches in our communities, throughout this pandemic. And the title of the uh, report is called Keeping the Faith. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it came home to me that something very striking was going on uh, on Good Friday last year. I was sitting at home looking through emails and there were two there from constituents saying, I don't have any food, what should I do? Now, you and me, Tim, we've become very familiar with referring people to food banks, but they were all going to be shut over the Easter holiday weekend. So I wasn't quite sure how to respond to these constituents. And then I came across another email from the mayor of Newham, Roxana Fiaz, and that said, if you come across people with no food over the holiday weekend, you should email the vicar of Ascension Church in the Royal Docks before 10 in the morning, and he'll arrange for a food parcel to be delivered later that day. Well, I didn't have any other ideas, so I gave it a try, and both of my constituents got their food parcels. Now, my local council has never worked with churches like that before. It was clear something unusual was going on, and it became clear that it was happening across the country as well. So the all-party parliamentary group on faith and society decided to carry out a research project with Goldsmiths University of London over the summer to find out what was going on. We sent a questionnaire to every local council in the UK, almost half of them replied. And we found that the collaboration between councils and faith groups, particularly churches, has dramatically increased in the uh, pandemic, with 60% of local councils telling us they'd worked with church-based food banks over the pandemic. And what was really striking about the research was how positive the councils are about their experience of these collaborations. One of them told the researcher, and I'm quoting here, my personal admiration for faith groups has gone through the roof just in terms of their commitment. We as a local authority didn't know what we were getting into. They've got involved with smiles on their faces and they've done it professionally. And I think that professionalism that councils have found from councils, from churches and other faith groups over the pandemic, I think is really going to change attitudes in a positive way for the future. Well, as we've already heard, there's some real evidence that that is happening and that people putting that effort into their community, serving, loving their community, uh, that is changing the way people out there view the church. And certainly many councils and other public bodies who, you know, might on the whole have been quite sniffy about yep. um, Christians and about church, yep. their experiences, you have rightly said, has been somewhat altered over yeah. the last few months do you feel ever that when the church fills a gap uh, when it comes to meeting social need that maybe somehow it deters the state from fixing it how do you respond to that well I mean I'm one of those uh, like you who thinks that the government should have handled things differently over the last few years but I am very thankful for what the churches have been able to do because I think things would have been much worse in 
many, many communities, perhaps in every community, had it not been for what the churches have been doing. You know, it's turned out that when our communities have really been up against it, it has been uniquely the churches which have stepped up to help. And what I'd like to see is, is this being a kind of springboard for renewing our politics. People who've been involved in youth groups, in food banks, in Christians Against Poverty, all these things, stepping forward, taking the, the motivation, the values that they've uh, invested in those initiatives, bringing those into our politics as well and, and renewing confidence in politics as a result. And I think looking at what the church does and how it views its role, there can sometimes be a tension between seeking to cure social ills and then seeking to preach the gospel. It sounds to me uh, like you've got the balance just about right. Well, I think a lot of churches have because, you know, I said the churches that have been running all these food banks, they've been preaching the gospel as well. And we, we, we you know, we need to be doing both of those. And, and that's, I think, really thrilling to see how both of those things have been going hand in hand during this emergency over the last year. Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, Great talking I, to you, Tim. I, I feel there's a there's a there's a part two that we need to revisit at some point. There's so much more to discuss. Um, really grateful to you, not just for your time with us today, but also for everything you do in your community and in Parliament over many many years. Uh, Stephen, God bless you. Have a great day. Thank you for having me, Tim. See you soon. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. This is your chance to ask me anything about being a Christian in politics. It could be ethical, could be political, it could, dare I say, even be personal. Well, this week, we have a question from Richard. Do you have any advice for how Christian voters can avoid the trap of being blinded by single-issue politics? Well, as I always uh, tell my children, Richard, uh, when they're looking at essay questions, always challenge the assumption in the question. I'm not sure that it is a trap, Richard, to uh, be into single issue politics. As I said earlier on, it's not really a mission of this uh, radio programme to convert everybody into being an, an active politician across a whole range of issues. So if you're passionate about one particular issue, whether it be homelessness, whether it be the plight of refugees, whether it be the importance of the family in our national life, then don't hold back, throw yourself into it. I think the trap is being blinded by one side of that two-sided coin that is on the one hand, commitment to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, and on the other hand, serving people in your community in a social setting. Often the church in the past has made the mistake of thinking it has to do one or the other. My view is as Christians, we should be loving our communities uh, in an active social service, but also loving our communities at exactly the same time by sharing the good news, by sharing the gospel. Well, as we come to the end of the programme, let's pray together. Well, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for people like Stephen Timms serving his local community and our national community and showing how uh, Christians can serve 
and honour you in the world of politics. We pray for wisdom for all those involved in our national life, uh, serving in local councils, serving in parliament. We want to thank you for the, the good news of the uh, spread of the vaccine and the fact that more and more people have got it and that it appears to be working. We also want to thank you for the fact that so many more in our society are thinking deeply about the meaning of life. Would you please place Christians in every place where there is somebody who is doubting their faith in those things uh, that are passing and not permanent so that we might give them a reason for the hope that we have. May you use this time of uncertainty and hope to give people lasting hope in the one who will never fail them, uh, that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, next week, we'll be talking to my friend, the SNP MP, David Linden, about his journey to faith and why he wants Scottish independence. I'm Tim Farron. Thank you so much for listening. You can listen to the podcast of this programme online by searching for A Mucky Business. Don't forget, if you have any questions you'd like to put to Tim in a future show, email farron at premier.org.uk.